Hey, everybody. My name is Rob Shear, and I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm also an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, an author of a book, A Forever Family. But most importantly, I am the father of four amazing children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right here where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a social media consultant, a radio host, a podcast producer, and a mother of two children. See, our country's foster care system is shattered, and this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Today we are talking to the CEO of Aaliyah, Dr. Amelia Frank Meyer, and she has a foundation that is working to keep families together and to find out what are those things that families need from the community in order to keep them together because a lot of kids are taken from their homes due to neglect. There's a very wide range of things that can constitute neglect and really examining what those things are and how the community can support these families so that they can stay together and have the best chance at at being together and so that kids can grow up with their own families. So uh, Rob actually goes to a conference, the Aaliyah Conference, um, several times a year to discuss these issues. And it's been a really eye-opening experience for him. So uh, Dr. Meyer, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for, for asking me. It's really my pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, I'm pretty excited because I actually get to call her my friend. And so we do the, you know, I was handpicked by her to be a part of this cohorts group that comes to, we actually meet every month, um, either by phone or in person every other month. And I I have to tell you, when I started, to, when I was asked to do this, I was like, okay, you know, I, I'm excited about this. I think I'd like to learn something different. And But I walked in, you know, and I will say I did walk in thinking, and I, I've used this term quite often, is that I thought they were all crazy, okay, first of all. And then I started listening to them. And I started listening to the stories. And I started listening to the statistics. And I thought, what in the hell am I doing? You know, I need to be out there, not, you know, and again, I, we're never going to get rid of foster care. Just not going to happen. And, but we can definitely start seeing less and less number of kids. So Amelia, thank you so much. I'd love for you to, to dive right in and talk, talk to, talk to us about what Aaliyah is doing and, and what, what we see our vision as communities, what we all should be doing. So um, Ali is a nonprofit um, located in St. Paul, Minnesota, but we work all over the country and a little bit internationally. We've been in Canada for a number of years and, and do a little bit of um, training work internationally as well. And really our goal is to support leaders of um, child welfare systems who are looking to um, transform their systems from ones that relied heavily on the removal of children and the separation of families to those that help parents to safely parent. So we talk about really fundamentally changing the purpose of the child welfare system, which is to keep children safely with their families, not from their families. And so that sounds simple, um, but it's really revolutionary um, in its um, in its idea. And, and that, that idea relies really on supporting parents to safely parent. And so... Then we start to really think about what would it what would it take to do that. So, so Rob is part of this um, 
innovation cohort, which is the result of a large design session that we did in 2017 where we invited 100 innovators from around the country, um, 10 federal and tribal innovators, 10 county innovators, 10 states, 10 nonprofits, 10 child experts like uh, pediatricians and principals and, and such, and, um, you know, 10 innovation fellows, 10 people with lived experience, but it turned out a little over a third of the 100 have lived experience because they're also running nonprofits and child welfare systems. And so uh, you get the idea. There were 10 groups of 10, one of each kind at, the t- at each table, and we work with IDEO, who is a human-centered design firm out of the Bay Area. And um, we had a how might we question, which was how might we redesign a better child welfare system? And to keep a long story a little bit shorter, after four days of designing and 30 different prototypes of ways we could do that, uh, really what they essentially said to us is, you have asked the wrong question. Uh, We don't need to rebuild a better child welfare system. The perfect child welfare system already exists, and it's called the family. The trouble is that sometimes families struggle, as all families do, as mine has, as yours has. Families struggle. And so what do we do then? What do we do then to support parents to safely parent rather than rescue and remove and disconnect um, from families? And so that that's the important question that we're up to. So we do that in our innovation cohort that Rob described that he's part of. And we get together with jurisdictional leaders from representing 14 different counties from four different states. And that's a big piece of the work we do. And then on the other side of our work, we're helping build capacity for change in child welfare systems. So we do a lot of workforce well-being because essentially you can't do change work if you're in survival brain. If you're feeling like, you know, the work is traumatizing you, you can't help others. So we do workforce well-being. And we do leadership coaching, and then we do some kind of change work with systems, helping them manage the change and build the right connections, relationships, and resources to make the change happen. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. It is a lot. So I have a question for you because I think mm-hmm. I think we see a lot of the worst horrific stories on the news and about, you know, kids that that should have been removed from their homes or parents getting their children back and then, you know, terrible things happen. But we don't talk a lot about the situations, which is the majority of the situations where children are neglected because lack of resources. The parents just don't have enough money to feed their kids. They don't have money to buy soap. They don't have money to buy clothes and stuff like that. So is that what you're talking about is focusing on how those situations can be resolved so that those parents can parent correctly? Well, um, yes, and um, I'll say. So for sure, you know, the vast majority of cases coming into child welfare in this time and place are neglect. And so they're really for crimes, as you you mentioned, of poverty, right? So um, I have to leave my children alone because I have to work and I can't afford daycare, that kind of thing. Um, And as you know, um, we have a uh, drug and alcohol epidemic in our country. So um, there's a a lot of neglect related to substance use. Um, And so definitely that's the case. However, I want to be clear that you know, this is the fundamental difference here, is if a parent could not parent a child in a way that would allow us to leave them in the home, instead of just removing the child and saying, that's a bad parent, you know what, they don't know how to parent, we can provide this child a better life, we're going to move them over to a better home, 
and we're going to give them a better chance. You know, the the move to a better home is a rare situation. It's usually many more homes, right? So our, our children are passed from home to home to home because children do their pain. They don't talk their pain. And when those pain-based behaviors show up, they're often asked to leave the home and then they go to another until they feel safe enough to show their pain and then another and another. So, you know, in my 30-plus career, I've worked with kids who I've seen 10, 20, 50-plus placements. Um, And what we're learning from the research is that one not-so-great parent, like not really great at all, is way better than two or five or ten good parents. So that moving, that disruption of attachment does far more harm than leaving a child with a parent who um, is far less than ideal. So it's not that I do not believe in removal. There are some times when a child must be, have to be removed from the parent, you know, in issues, uh, um, instances of sexual abuse or in instances where um, the child's life is at risk. Then we, you know, there's just not an option. So we would have to do removal. The difference here is, then we would say, why couldn't that parent safely parent? And what does that parent need to be able to safely parent? And the answer, more often than most people would like to believe, is they grew up in our system. And they spent time in foster care. Or they were highly traumatized and never got what they needed. So instead of just repeating the cycle of removing the child, placing them with a better family, and then what happens? Then those parents have additional children, like, you know, and, and, or more children, or they just um, are, are suffering and, from their trauma and the trauma of removal, and so they're using drugs and alcohol to numb it. You know, we're not ending anything when we rescue a child from that situation if we don't attend to the parent. And so we are now not just providing all of our services to the children, but thinking about what does the parent need to safely parent? And when we do that, that's a whole new way of our work because before we have disappeared families or punished or blamed or shamed or those are bad people who don't know how to parent. That is not it. Those are traumatized people who love their children and cannot safely parent. And so our job becomes how do we help them safely parent? And the reason is, the reason is because we have zero evidence that out-of-home care is good for kids, not from the research, not from the long-term outcomes, not from the voices of children who have lived through it, not from the social return on investment study, which says that we lose $3.64 for every dollar we invest when we do it well, and $9.55 for every dollar we invest when we do it the way we usually do it. There's no evidence that that is the right intervention. And what we know for sure is that what every child on the full face of the planet needs is for their parents to be okay. That's when they're okay. So how do we help parents to be able to safely parent? So, Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it opens up so many things and you're all right about that. You know, when it comes to, you know, making a, trying to help a parent become healthier because they didn't receive the help when, you know, I, I see this quite often kids who I meet throughout the system 
where, you know, their parents were in the system and, you know, their parents were in and out of the system and then they've been taken from their parents. But at the same time, I mean, I'm looking at my daughter right now. She's 15 years old. Um, I we're trying to build a relationship with her bio mother and her bio mother was in the system and she's never received the help that she needs. And she's now, you know, in her twenties and, you know, it's just heartbreaking to me. It's because, you know, if we would have just done what we should have been doing as a community, you know, years ago when she gave birth to both of my children, um, and as much as I hate to say this because I love my babies, um, they would be with their mother. And maybe we wouldn't be dealing with a lot of the trauma that we're dealing with now, the abandonment. And, you know, um, you know, one of the things that you said that there is zero, there's zero um, evidence that removing a child from a family and putting them in what the, we call, which I've heard people say, oh, it's a better life. And it's like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I used to, I used to be that guy who used to say, oh, they're removing that kid, you know, because they're going to have bet and no, no yeah. reading and really educating myself. So there's zero evidence you're saying. Right. So um, we did a research brief on the evidence against family separation. And here's the thing. I mean, we have, we have no evidence that that foster care with unrelated persons is better than, than non-removal. Right? So the, the thing is, there's a whole list, a whole list of challenges um, that happen, lifelong predictive harm that we know happens when we remove a child and place them with an unknown, unrelated person. And so that brings about a whole list of things we know from the research. Here's the, here's the rub, right? Here's the challenge, is that once in a rare while, if we don't remove a child, they can be seriously harmed or worse. And we know for a fact when we remove children that they, there's lifelong predicted harm. So, so we have 670,000 children in our country every single year living out of their homes. And so we, we know that those kids are being traumatized and harmed at, upon removal. We know it. it. It creates an ace, an adverse childhood experience to remove them. So that's true for hundreds of thousands of children. And there, there may be a small, much, much smaller number of children who are harmed if we don't do that. And so we can't do nothing, harder than the double negative. We can't do nothing. We can't just say, well, all of our interventions, you know, we don't have a, a good a good uh, indication that they work. So you know what we should do? We should just leave kids home and dangerous spots. We can't say that. We have to do something. But all the evidence points to we have to do something different. Because our current way of work, the idea of non-related, non-known, non-already trusted persons um, separating families and placing children with them, what we know is that is not producing the desired results. We know that that's, that is exacerbating the trauma. And so, like I said, I'm not going to be a person who says never remove. But I am going to say that the cases in which we should do removal are a small fraction of the ones in which we currently do removal, a small fraction. And when we do removal, we must be supporting parents in long-term ways, like long-term ways to be able to get them back to a place of safely parenting. And um, if we have to remove, I would be a strong advocate of if we had to do out-of-the-home placement, we tried not to do out-of-family placement. 
So each one of us has 100 to 300 living relatives, and we frankly do not have the current resources available to thoroughly check a child's related or known network. So already trusted adults, people who the child knows and loves or to whom they're related. We don't have the, the staffing capacity. We don't have the, the time, the resource to be able to search in the way that we need to from the very beginning. And then what we end up with is we place children with available foster homes who um, are in most in many cases, you know, not related or known to the child. And then they be- become attached and they form a bond. And then we finally get around to finding family. And then people say to me, well, they're already attached to foster family. They, they live there for a year and they don't know their aunt. Even though she's their mother's sister, they don't know her. So they should stay with the foster family, right? And it's like, well, it's a little, I refer to those cases as Solomon's baby. It's like, there's no right answer, right? In either case, you're going to do harm. You're going to do harm to break that attachment. You're going to do harm to raise a child outside of their family when you have family available. And so we have to do such a better job at the very beginning of, at the very beginning of trouble and an even better job at creating community conditions that allow people to safely parent. And that is where our real work is, is in that primary prevention is how do we create the economics, the safety, the childcare, the community involvement conditions so parents can keep their children safe. So one of the things that that and I know Dana has lots of questions too. She's like, but one of the things that 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 I I we had a podcast you know a week or so ago with a, a casa worker, and one of the things that I um, brought up and I'll bring up again is I think we do so much damage to a child you know by you know first of all removing a child from a, a home where there's quote neglect we all neglect is a different definition for each and every one of us um but then what happens is is w- exactly what you just said so the child goes to a home they go to their foster home um the the courts do whatever they say they do to find a you know some living relative let's say it takes a year um and then all of a sudden you know and i do agree that if if whether or not it's it's whoever wants to use the word better but i do believe they should go with with a living relative why can't we in a way do this in a healthy way where you know it's not this pull away and you're done with the foster parents just like with casa i didn't know this until two weeks ago that if you're a casa worker and you've been this one woman she's been with this child for seven years i think she said well i think it was three years as kind of an active CASA working with her and then, but they've known each other for seven years. Seven years. And then so mm-hmm. all of a sudden CASA's, CASA's model is when that child goes back into the, to their birth parents, there is not allowed to have any connection whatsoever. Right. And, and I right. just think that that's damaging for a child. I think yes. that, you know, I, we should I have a, sl- agree. okay, good, 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 good. Cause that, that's something I just, you know, I, and you know what, and I, I haven't really, Dana knows the story. I haven't told this story to many people, but um, I have a biological sister who passed away from cancer um, back when I was in my 20s. And she left me her 
two of her girls. They were 15 and 16 years of age. Raised those two girls. We find out that there's a third sister that my sister had had. And, I, I, you know, because we were all from the system, we didn't know about her. And in August of last year, um, she had a drug overdose in Florida. And she has three kids. Um, we, you know, find out about these three ch- young children who, by the way, were put in foster care. Um, my oldest daughter, who is in her mid thirties, she's successful, married, you know, lives up in Pennsylvania. It literally, it, and, and by take that back, it was a year August. So, so the kids were in the system for a year and, you know, seven months. It took us that long to fight Florida to have these kids transferred to Pennsylvania, and it just happened on Saturday. Um, and my niece, you know, drove down her and her husband with the U-Haul to pick. And here are these kids who, you know, from the very beginning, my sister, my my oldest daughter is saying, "We, I will take them. I'm my children are grown. I've got this big house. My husband and mm-hmm. I." It, mm-hmm. It's just, why do we as states just seem to make it so difficult for things like this? I mean, this should have been something that should have happened quickly and not a year and a half. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, we forget that children's time is much different than ours, and a year and a half can be actually literally half of their lifetime or half of their, um, you know, lifetime of their memory. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. And, and what you brought about, Rob, first I want to address that is, you know, we have old rules, even in my profession in social work, about the boundaries. And they were meant to protect children um, from workers getting enmeshed with them or, you know, having close relationship with them. I mean, frankly, when I was started this work, we told foster parents, don't get attached. And if they started to get attached, then we moved the kids, right? So um, it's like you have a child living in your home. Don't hug them. You know, don't don't get attached. And so... Um, so we are just learning so much more about the importance of these uh, connections and about attachment and development. And, you know, I, several years ago, checked with the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, the person in Minnesota was an attorney and asked him about this idea. Like, even people who had a child on their caseload forever and ever and and wanted to adopt them, you know, and, and how do you do that in ethical ways by shifting cases or supervisors are leaving your job, but the idea that they can't talk to them anymore is harmful. That's harmful to the child. Or the idea that we can't accept gifts from children. They give you a drawing or their last piece of gum and you're not supposed to say yes. I mean, what is more harmful there, really? And so we're just learning so much more about ways we can show up um, uh, to preserve those connections that have been built. Our children have very few connections. And so some of those professional connections that turn personal and have been discouraged historically with the right ethical protections, you know, I mean, you can't keep them on your caseload, obviously, um, but with the right ethical protections, I think we're moving into a new place of understanding how important those connections are and preserving them. You know, we see the cost of of children in the system, and, and you know, it's, you know, over $25 billion annually we invest in foster care. I, I, I'm I'm just shocked that you know why we're not investing that money in the family. I mean, let's say for instance, 
you know, in a perfect world, and we know it's not perfect, a child comes mm-hmm. into the system. Why, why are we not trying to find more foster homes that foster the family and not just mm-hmm. foster the child that we, you know, if, if, a, if a mother or, you know, I mean, we all have fallen in our lives one time or another, and we need someone to help us lift us up. Why do we feel like there's this, like, immediate reaction to remove the child instead of, you know, maybe bringing someone into fostering the family. And here, and just my example is, you know, uh, you know what, I want to be a foster parent or to the family. So that means what I'm going to do is I'm going to come over in the morning. I'm going to, you know, help the mom talk about breakfast and good eating habits. And I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, be there to support her as she's crying because, you know, the baby's crying. I mean, and then at the evening time, I'm going to come back and I'm going to sit there, but Really keeping the family intact and having someone foster the family. Has anybody ever thought about that? Yeah, for sure we have. And um, and you just said so many rich things there, Rob. I got to take them apart a little at a time. So number one is um, I feel like what you just described is the future of foster care, right? So that's we need everybody in the new way of work, and that is the way we're going to need foster parents to show up, right? We're going to need them to take care of the parents. So the parent can take care of the child because what the child needs is for their parent to be okay. So we're really going to be actually in in fostering families, really having the peer-to-peer parent partner support for parents so they can raise their children in safe ways. That's, That's exactly it. Why doesn't that happen? Because the funding is not aligned to do that. Because our federal, and you have to look historically on, because it's going to answer your other question too. The other question about why don't we help the parents, right? So um, historically, right, the funding was set up for orphans and widows, our, this kind of, of, of um, the early parts of our system. And orphans and widows were deserving. They weren't in that situation because of their own, quote, unquote, bad choices, right? Their, their fathers were or spouses were lost at, at war. Um, or something happened to them. So they it was not their fault. And so federal funding was designed to take care of them. Then it became clear, you know, when we started to move towards removal and the advent of our foster care system, all of the funding was connected to removal. So you had to be in placement to access the funding. You couldn't, the funding is not tied to taking care of children in their own homes or with their own families. Families should just do that. They shouldn't get federal funding for that. And and certainly families who were in that situation because of their own quote-unquote bad choices. So people who, who um, did drugs or abused or neglected their children, those were quote-unquote bad choices. And the reason why I put those in air quotes for you is because they're not about choices. Those are trauma responses, the result of what happened to them because parents are not born thinking, I think I'll harm my child. I'll have a child so I can harm them. They have children, you know, by and large because, and they love them. They're just not able to keep them safe. And so, so this is this old idea of how our um, welfare and poverty systems set up. And how they were set up was for the deserving poor. Be clear, deserving poor. So we give social supports to people who what? Deserve it. Not to people who don't deserve it. Not to people who, you know, make bad choices or pick drugs over their kids or hurt their kids. Those people don't deserve help. And so we're not going to give them help because it's their fault. 
they don't deserve it. They should be punished. And you know what we should do? What's the worst punishment you can give somebody? The worst. Take their children. That is the worst punishment you can offer. And so we have, up until now, not really understood the traumatic impact for the child of doing that. And so we have historically had to, for funding reasons and because of our own cultural need to punish and our own lack of understanding about what children need, we have judged parents as deserving or undeserving, and that's why it's set up the way it is. And so I just want to give you a quick example of that in modern day, right? So there was, in a jurisdiction in which I worked, uh, a judge wanted to punish a mother, right? So what he did is he locked her in jail, and she had three very young children. And to punish the mother, he said, the children may not call, may not write letters, may not visit. They are to have zero contact with their mother, and then maybe she'll learn a lesson. But who suffered? Gosh, this kid. Right? Can you imagine? That's that's right. So we have a lot to learn about what children need. And the real truth of it is they need their parents to be okay. And we want them to need us. We want to come in and rescue and save the children and to think that it'll be as good or better for them. We can provide them a better life. But the galling truth of it is that sleeping in grandma's bathtub with or without roaches is better than sleeping in a stranger's home in a princess bed. And until we figure that one out, we're not going to get kids what they need to thrive. Can you give an example of how this has worked? I mean, is it has it been put into place anywhere that it's actually working where you're seeing results from going in and helping the families and helping, you know, parents heal their trauma so that they're able to take care of their kids, helping them out financially or with child care? So how is it working? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the cohort that Ron's a part of. These jurisdictions are practicing kind of in a do tank instead of thinking about it in the think tank way they're doing the do tank where they're trying these things and in those 14 jurisdictions where we tried new ways of doing these things in one year we were able to reduce the number of children living in foster care by 12 percent and the number of children living in residential facilities by 37 percent across the system and just to give you one example the eastern service region of iowa instituted two important interventions One is a child safety conference. So before any child comes out of the home, a, uh, you know, a leader has got to come meet with the worker day or night, no matter when it is, and they sit down and they start talking about what else could we put in place to keep this child safe besides removal. So is there someone we could invite into the house? Could we have the auntie come stay with them? Could they go to grandma's? Could we put in um, a worker who who came in to do safety or drug and alcohol tech um, on a daily basis? You know, what could we do to keep the family intact and safe? What would it take for us to feel like they were safe? Could they move next door to the neighbor's house who has been functioning like a grandma um, in this situation? You know, and they could still have a lot of contact with mom, but they'd be in the safe care of of the neighbor. You know, what what would it take, right? What would it take to keep this the family um, connected. That's part of what they're doing. The yeah. other is, yep. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, uh, um, and, and the other is parent partners. So parent partners um, have been instituted, which are parents who have made it through the system, right? Through the system, they've come out the other side, and then they mentor parents 
to help them do the healing that they need to get together. That's that's a really important part of um, of what you know they've done to help make it work is to have these mentors and roll outs. And Wisconsin is starting that. That's happening in Iowa. But the trouble is, in most jurisdictions, that role doesn't really exist yet. And if it does exist, the caseloads are too high, the interventions are too short to do any kind of real healing. So what our parents really need are somebody next to them and say, you know, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be with you and and walk through this with you till you come out the other side, till you're able to safely parent. So an, another quick thing on that is in Iowa. They have started asking the four questions um, once a danger has been identified. And they have judges asking all these questions. They've done a pilot project on this to see how it goes. But the four questions, once we've identified a risk, are uh, identified a safety, um, because all children are at risk, even even your own, um, but identified a safety concern. Number one, what can we do to remove the danger instead of remove the child? Number two, can someone either uh, someone who knows the child and family move into the home to remove the danger. And the third question is, can the caregiver go live with someone who they know and love or to whom they are related? And the fourth one would be, could the child move temporarily um, to go live with um, someone else? So could the caregiver leave? Could the child leave? Could we bring someone into the home? Or could we... um, remove the danger instead of the child, right? So just thinking through, like, what are the ways to keep these connections, these relationships intact? Wow. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It does. And, and you know, by the way, I've, I've, I, I'm lucky I get to meet with these amazing, amazing people and hear their stories. And when I'm hearing these statistics of the change that's coming about, the, the number of kids who are actually being able to be left in their home, um, it's it's shocking to me, and I said that when I, I'll never forget when I heard the first um, the first um, statistics of the numbers, and I was just like, "What in the world? Are you kidding me?" And then I was just on the phone with um, one of the counties. There's a county here in Maryland that that is part of this cohorts group, and I was just on the phone with them the other day, and we are planning um, we're planning an education day where we're trying to educate the community about coming in and stepping up and how to support the family because I was just by the way I was going to tell you this when I see you in the next week but I was mm-hmm. just in Fort Wayne Indiana and I was with two of the head people of Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield and I talked about you and about how um you know the amount of money that they're spending on children in foster care and they actually are really interested in doing exactly what you've been saying is okay how do we support the family how do mm-hmm. we you know mm-hmm. you know even for them they're they're thinking what what happened to faith base where faith base would come in you know as a kid you know you, mom needed something the the, the church was there for you and you know um we Mm -hmm. we've just we've lost that along the way we have lost that whole thing of community along the way well i will tell you uh, you're you're amazing you're amazing (laughs) 
Back at you, Rob. You I, know, I love the work you're doing. You, you have, you continue, continue, continue to teach me. And, you know, I am so excited about this podcast and for people to hear it. I want people to, if you could give us your website, I would love people to go in and read. And, and by the way, this is a nonprofit. This is, this is a nonprofit. And we talk about this every single week for nonprofits. You know, you want to see change, be part of the change, donate. Donate, because I can tell you that the money that you donate for this organization is making a change for children. I can, I've seen it. I, I see the statistics. I talked to the head of, of child welfare services for these counties, and um, the future is bright. It is bright. You know, and, and one thing I, I, I remember when I first met you, and I was in, in St. Paul area, and I met you, and, and um, I totally looked at things differently. I was like, how could anybody say stranger? You know, these are loving people. But I actually now talk in all my speeches throughout the country about we are putting children with strangers. And we are. We are. And I had to come to grips with that and learn, knowing that it, it's not in a negative way, but it is the truth. The truth is we are taking children from, you know, I, I am the first one to say, I miss my mom and dad. I, no matter how bad it was, I miss my mom and dad. And I wish those years that I was not with them, that somebody would have stepped up and there would have been a way I could have been with them, no matter how bad it was. Um, nothing was worse than what, you know, the neglect of feeling not loved, that you feel you don't matter. Um, and that's you what these, belong. yeah, you don't belong. You don't belong. I look at my my nineteen year old son Alex, who's with us now, and he's going through that at those emotional states where he just feels like he was neglected. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, gosh, if somebody just would have helped his dad find a job, helped his dad through you know drug rehab or alcoholism, whatever he needed, helped his dad to find affordable housing, he should be with his dad. You know. Because his dad, at the end of the day, is not a bad guy. You know, he's just had some really crappy luck. Um, so, amazing. So, tell us again, how's what's the website and how can people learn more? Uh, I just I just love what you're saying there, Rob, too. It's, um, so, the website is um, www.aliya.innovate. Um, ooh. Look at I just did my website wrong. <laughs> it's www.alia, A-L-I-A, innovations, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N-S, dot O-R-G. So Alia innovations with an S, dot O-R-G. And we will put that on our podcast yes, page. Yes, we will. And, you know, I want, yeah. pe- I want people to know that, that you know, this, this cohort thing, one of the things I was so impressed with this is that, you know, a lot of times I, I hear people throughout the country say, oh, you know, they're just, you know, getting a bunch of social workers and, and people with a lot of letters behind their name together. But, no, by the way, they're putting people in the room that have life experiences, people like me, mm-hmm. people like, you know, my friend Tracy, who's become my friend, all these people who, you know, um, who have had life experiences and who are saying, listen, and by the way, we have been in that room where we all do not agree, but you know what? Yeah. We, we, what I love is the, the, the fact that one thing we agree with is what we have right now isn't working. Yeah. Isn't working. And that's right. And there's a a ton of free, um, just on the website too, um, downloads. We have a healing guidebook, which is a guide for practitioners on alternatives to 
talk therapy for folks with trauma, so really practical. It's all free for download. There's a social return on investment study about the money we lose um, when we invest money in, in doing it the current way. Uh, there is information on this cohort, and they'll be really soonly released uh, a, a, a piece about the current evidence from the cohort of these systems who are trying it a new way. There's a research brief on the evidence against family separation. So lots of lots of free resources on the website too. I say it all the time: you got to educate yourselves. As a community, we all want to see change, and we need to educate ourselves. And here's an amazing opportunity: you'll be able to find the link on our podcast through all of our social media platforms. You know, and again, I I can't thank you enough. I'm I'm excited to see you in, real soon. But we always we you know Dana we always Dana and I ask a question to every one of our our guests at the end of our our podcast. And Dana, what's that? question that you would like to ask my friend so i think we've talked about it throughout the entire podcast but (laughs) (laughs) but um if you could change two things about the foster care system what would they be two things uh one is instead of removing children from their families i would ask that the resources the funding the foster families the work would be focused on helping parents to safely parent that'd be one um and and the second is that um, in the foster care system right now, we have a whole bunch of kids who are um, living in um, foster care as a result of the way we used to do our work. And so I would um, hope that we don't forget them, too, that there's a, a very significant effort of moving those kids to healing and permanency that needs to happen alongside trying to get out of care that we would do our loving and ethical duty to the to the children who have been separated for years and years to help them to do um, healing and be reunited. Wow. Yeah. I love the question answers that we get for that. And yep. it's every single week it's somebody says something different. And I love that fact that, you know, we cannot forget those children. I think children l- linger in the system way too long because we're not investing in the families. And I think that if we would invest in the families, we would not see these kids moving from home to home to home to home. Um, and by the way, it doesn't take all that much money. It doesn't re- it doesn't take all that much money. You know, there yeah. there's a lot of moms that I see who, you know, are visiting their children with their one hour supervision and you know, I look in their eyes and I'm just thinking, you just need somebody to stand next to you and say, You matter. You matter. Right. And, and let's get your right. kid home. Because your kid needs to be That's home. Right. Well, listen, thank That's you so much. I appreciate all your time. Yeah. You you are a you you inspire me, and I can't thank you enough for being my friend and for you, t- you know teaching all of us along the way that you know it is family first, and we all need to understand the healthier our families are, the healthier our communities are, and that to That's me right. it's it's a key for success. So listen, have an amazing rest of your week, and once again, thank you for joining Fostering Change. Yeah, take care. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Rob. Thank right, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. 
And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.